This episode of All the President's Men is brought to you by another One Heat Minute production on our feed, Increment Vice. Hosted by Travis Woods, our narrator Kat Corbett, and myself, Blake Howard, have brought to you 45 episodes unpacking scene by scene Paul Thomas Anderson's incredible film, Inherent Vice. We've just completed the series. Travis has done a monumental work of cinephilia, deep diving the entire film over many, 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 many months. 45 episodes in 12 months from November 1st to October 31st, spanning the whole of 2020 and how the film has mutated in our conception over that time. Uh, I'm really proud to have produced it. I'm immensely proud to have worked with Travis and Kat along the way. And uh, we've had so many phenomenal guests, uh, including the incredible Ryan Johnson and just so many people we admire, Drew McWeeny, Walter Chaw, Matt Zolosites, uh, Angelica J. Bastien. Um, get along to it and listen. But now, another episode of all the president's minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to all the president's minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, I've recorded a couple of episodes today. Um, so uh, one with an Australian person who you're going to hear coming up on the show very shortly. Uh, now with um, uh, a brother in podcasting and an obsession with this movie, a uh, f- former guest of this show, I've been blessed to be on his terrific show. And it's, uh, you know, we've kind of, we've been connected in this movie and it feels like four decades ago since we spoke. Um, it feels like the paradigms of everything that we are both mutually interested in are shifting um, the American election and the impacts just as a, as a beacon, if you like, uh, uh, for the rest of the world and as an influencer for the rest of the world has already started to happen. And we've just been probably having one of a really cool podcast discussions that was never recorded prior to us actually hitting record on this show, um, which I kind of deeply regret and we'll kind of find a way to talk about some of it. Um, again, my guest, not just a podcast host and co-host of The Cinematologist, um, not just a lecturer, uh, at the University of Brighton, but just a just a, a formidable film mind and a person who um, is interested in this medium as well. And it's my pleasure to have him back, bookending the show almost a hundred episodes apart. Dario Linares, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on, Blake. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh, it does feel like a long time ago on a parallel universe ago. <laughs> I think. I mean, we were just talking a little bit there, weren't we, about you know the the effect on on us as individuals but also kind of our our way of viewing the world and everyone's way of viewing the world and i think that i don't know i mean we'll get into it whether my opinion of this movie has changed just in the last year but i think you know talking about and watching rewatching the movie again you know and and going through the year that we've gone through and and you know we're now the day after joe biden has just been announced and there's great news in that and the, the guy who shouldn't be mentioned who always is is hopefully <laughs> on the train out of here but there's a long way to go before that is fully uh fully happens but yeah it's uh it's great to be back on and hopefully that we'll uh we'll be able to unlock some of these uh issues as we go through in the next little while that you were the, uh, at least the publishing which would have been pretty close to our last time of talking um was the 8th of april and I remember a great tweet of someone going, I've now been alive in seven decades. And I think, you know, someone's like, I was alive in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. March 
And then it's like April to September and then the last three days because of yeah, yeah. the length of time. It is just, it has felt like an unbelievable time, like shifting paradigms of things happening with COVID all around the world. You guys in the UK, Oz going in and out of a couple of lockdowns. We've been, uh, we've been able to scrape by in Sydney, but in Melbourne, our, our, our people in Victoria have, you know, gone been through one of the harshest lockdowns in the world to curb a massive outbreak there. And they are finally coming out and starting to see the sun and starting to see movies again. You guys in the UK, similarly in Europe, it's all happening. Um, the outbreak's happening again. And it, it's just a, it's been an absolutely unfathomable time. And now this movie that, um, that I thought was going to get rendered uh, basically pure fantasy. If Trump was <laughs> reelected um, mm-hmm. has now, it does have a slight bit of vindication of the media holding things to account of politics in action of people voting and being influenced by political malfeasance and fuckery and all those sorts of things. But also at the same time, still a really fascinating film, a fascinating dialogue. And it's something that we're still going to have to contend with broadly because it's not just about, it's not just about this movie existing uh, uh in the tangible reality that we know but it's like all the paradigms and all the topics that come up and how people have been you know how how a, a sitting president of the united states can be so blatantly corrupt and so blatantly uh mm. tell lies and so blatantly just like discount facts and yet still a really razor's edge election in by by a lot of metrics yeah i mean there's so many ways I think, and we talked in the first when I was on last time about where this film is dated and where it's still really prescient. And I think those two things again, that, that <laughs> sort of parallel line is coming, you know, is still there it, it, all these episodes later on. Because I think that, you know, that a movie today would have to deal with the fact that you've got a president here to, in, in 2020 who is refusing at the moment to accept the result and is not you know, abiding by the norms. I mean, Trump would never have resigned, no matter what the takes never. were, you know, never, never in a million years. So never. it's interesting how- But I have, that- I must say, I have heard a fun theory that someone oh, said yeah. that knowing that of the amount, the sheer volume of pending litigations against Trump's businesses and himself personally, that he would, someone has floated the theory that he'll, he will resign the presidency before actually doing the handover, then thus leaving it to Mike Pence. Mike Pence would then pardon him yeah, yeah, yeah. for crimes so that he could go out. And I, I'm like, a, a, a few times I thought that was ridiculous, but then other times I've gone, actually, I wouldn't put it past him to do such a thing. No, that, that is, a, there's a good possibility that that <laughs> will happen. There's another, there's a good possibility. And again, you know, I don't want to sort of rain on the parade of happiness too much because I'm very happy that, that um, Trump is gone and, or, you know, it looks like he's going, but <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if the, if the Democrats just pardon him and Biden just pardons him under the guise of we all need to move on. Now, pardoning, I don't know what the scope of that would be, because obviously there's so much litigation in terms of his own personal wealth. You know, he owes so much money to so many different organizations. But yeah, and, and, and that, again, without raining on, on the parade of, of happiness of everyone, it doesn't bode well for, I think, I mean... What I want to say is that tr- I think Trumpism is here to stay, even though Trump has gone. And I think that that has got its claws into the Republican Party. And Biden yesterday's speech had a lot of nice things in it, but the whole bipartisan thing, you know, you try 
bipartisan discussions, not only with Mitch McConnell, but now with QAnon. Yes. I I think there's a lot of problems to come. Yeah. It's, it's, um, they, they weaponize speaking to people's, uh, worst impulses, you know, and, and I feel like, uh, you know, and, and, and there's definitely a stack of work to do with the American worker because the Democrats used to claim that they were the American workers party fundamentally. And I think that there, if there's anything that the Republicans have done in the last four years, just as an outsider observer, and particularly as a person who's been more educated on it this year, doing this show probably than ever other, any other time before is there was a need and the Republicans filled it. Like they said what they wanted to hear. They in amongst the other you know, in amongst the spurious facts and the just, you know, uh, blatant um, insensitivities and all of the, you know, just all of the nonsense, you know, it's just pumping people up who felt like they had a void. Like he's just giving them a voice, giving them a good feeling, giving them hope um, and saying a lot of things. And then whenever anything doesn't go to his precise plan, because it, you know, he's saying things that fundamentally don't work or require some form of cooperation and compromise. He then just blames the other side for that too. And then these people get more emboldened and bigger and it's just, yeah, it's, it's been a really, it's an incredible time. And I think that for you and I as outsiders, this is one thing that I think is great to talk to you again, Dario is Trumpism is, is a mechanism that the conservative parties in both the UK and Australia have been very fervent students of. And I think that the speaking to the lowest common denominator and speaking to those things, and it doesn't quite get as extreme in either country, but absolutely because just, you know, maybe it's our nature of our personality and obviously that sort of that outlook, but man, they've, they're taking notes and the fact that it's falling down is going to be interesting to see how that reverberates through both of the political systems in each of our countries to see if the rhetoric changes at all, because it's interesting to see if it will. But, but yeah, I think that he, the Trumpism is a cheat code of like how to communicate with underservice voters in, in the largest yeah. extent and, and, and just people who are defiant and don't really want to change because people don't like fucking changing. And if you're telling them that the makeup of their society is changing and the makeup of this thing, some people just feel downtrodden and feel, you know, everyone's got a cross to bear and everyone feels like they've been hard done by. And, you know, you can't often take, you know, both you and I, even before we started recording, we're talking about how grateful we are ultimately in the grand scheme of things because, you know, we've got employment and we're healthy and we've still been able to have jobs and all those sorts of things in this pandemic. And, you know, not a lot of people want to do that. If they've been beaten up, they don't give a shit about anyone else. You think about yourself first. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the move to the extreme left and extreme right, and again, you can, you know, people will argue over what the extreme actually is, but that, that sort of polarization and the distrust of what you would call sort of centrist consensus politics, I think is, you know, very much related to the disenfranchisement in the capitalist system in its broadest sense. You know, if, if, if you're a young person, you don't have access to a job, you know, you don't have, have an entry point into the very system of capitalist accumulation, which, you know, we could argue all day about whether we should move towards a socialist system. <laughs> but, you know, all of that, I don't want to get into that. But if the system that is set up is not um, catering for the broad enough, you know, 
amount of the populace in any given country or across across the world and particularly is skewed towards old over young which is you know i would argue is definitely the case then it's very difficult to maintain the link between democracy and capitalism yes you know what i mean because why yes. should you be involved in democracy if the outcomes of it is not going to furnish it you with it, it doesn't do you know, me with, anything with, doesn't yeah, do me, it doesn't do me anything just in my day-to-day -day life, my ability to live. Cui bono, Daria. It's something yeah. that I say, maybe it's too many gangster movies. You know, people who've listened to this series may have listened to one hit minute, but qui bono, who benefits? Like, yeah. at, at the end of the day, there has to be some benefit for participating in, demo, in a democracy, whether it's, you, you know, I, the ideals are there, but also, you know, governments holding people to account. And there's already been some writings up that, you know, Biden in an executive order is potentially in, we, we, we don't see this as much in Australia um, or in the UK, but you know, student debt is real. And in America, it is not only real, it is fucking yeah, insane. It is yeah. insane. And so, you know, apparently executive orders are already being drafted up to try and like absolve every student $50,000 worth of their debt throughout the country. Like he apparently has the power to do yep. things like that. And you're hearing about those things. And, and for me, I think about my American friends out there who've studied and those things. And I go, Oh my God, that is like a, that is an unbelievable lifeline to actually participate mm. in the economy when you're not being crippled with debt. And in Australia, you know, our, 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 our COVID budget, I guess is probably how it's best branded is doing the same thing. It's like, it's cutting university teachers and costs and it's doing those sorts of stupid things. It's increasing funding, you know, it's increasing the, the price you have to pay for an arts education. It's doing those stupid things like short sighted, you know, not valuing the art sort of uh, things. Um, but, at the same time, you're just like, how are you going to promote people to do this? It's all this short-sighted stuff. At the end of the day, I guess both of our countries are lucky that there is some form of socialized, so whatever kind of socialized something that is intrinsic to our societies that are like, yeah, medicine should be available for all people. They shouldn't have to pay for it. If you want it slightly private, you, want, you can do that. Those sorts of things, just not in America's paradigm at all. No, no. And, and, and actually, I think it, I was talking with my girlfriend about this. It's going to have to go further in the light of COVID because, I mean, we were talking about in within a year's time, if if the employment projections are the way that they look like they're going to be, there's going to have to be a rethink of, of the distribution of work. So I just give the example, like someone like myself who earns a, you know, a good living and has got a full-time job five days a week. I think there's going to be, there's going to have to be a kind of reckoning whether we go down to a kind of like four-day week as standard or there is some kind of imposition of job sharing in a way that someone like me would go down to three days and would share with somebody else in two days because, and, and then, you know, you can get into conversations about universal basic in income, because I think that the, we are still operating under the, under the proviso that things are more or less going to go back to normal and they just aren't. I don't no. think, I think the cat is out of the bag. Yeah. It's, and the only way that it comes to a semblance of normal, if it like, if it, it doesn't become normal, it goes to a throwback of about 50 years ago. It was yeah, called, yeah, yeah. you know, a, a, a great comedian. I listened to his podcast, Tim Dillon said, this is where the zoomers turn into the boomers. And basically it's like when manufacturing comes back, like just as a simple thing, you know, if China makes all of the, if China makes all of the, you know, the medicines that your, your country relies on to service your people and then the international <laughs> there's a pandemic where you cannot get international supply lines. So you run short of vital medical equipment and supplies. 
there maybe should be a rethink of like actually manufacturing some of the critical health supplies in your own country. Um, you know, I've got a couple of friends and relatives who like work in manufacturing in the country. Like Australia doesn't have much manufacturing on shore, but since COVID their company has gone absolutely gangbusters because people still want to build things. And the only company that's actually doing the physical manufacturing of that, those key supplies for builders are going gangbusters. So I think that it's like, for me and, and you know, for Australia, for, for the UK, I think there's so much of that, that, you know, like you said, the paradigm has to shift. It's like, if you want to go about normal, we have to start thinking smartly, like you said, job shares, cutting things down, looking at how you can share it around. But that's a very selfless thing when you're talking about government professions. I think it goes more broad than that. It's like rethinking a strategy of like, if you've offshored or outsourced or whatever you want to call so much of your key stuff because we worked in a globalized market before it's not the same anymore. So figure it out. Like you got to do, you got to do something drastically different if you want to, if you want to change um, how to keep, uh, you know, you have to have a middle class that they've been torpedoing for different decades all across the Western world. You have to have a middle working class that's earning good money that aren't working crazy hours that can have like daycare for their kids. And, you know, I think a lot of that stuff is, um, it's how each country deals with it is how successfully their economies and their people are going to be once they come through it. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with, with all of that. And I think just relating quickly back to Biden is that I hope that that happens. You know what I mean? I hope that yeah. there isn't a sort of left behind kind of, Oh, we're going back to the status quo. Everything's hunky dory. And, and I mean, that that's why the Senate race was probably just as important as the as the yeah. presidency if they get that 50-50 because otherwise it's just going to be blocked and make no mistake they will come back in four years if, if nothing if it gets worse or nothing everything stays the same in four years then you know the the, and the next generation of trump will will do it a lot more and it'll be more aggressive and ruthlessly and, yeah. and there will no be no more elections after that daria it will be called <laughs> Well, (laughs) it will be be an authoritarian dictatorship because, you know, do you think Putin ever has to ask anyone if he wants to get anything over the line? People say yes. Um, That, you know, we can say what you want about Stalin and all of it has been said, but, you know, you know, drastically transforming the Russian economy and uh, the Russian industry and putting focuses on like drastically upskilling their people and those sorts of things. They did, you know, the communists are pretty good. You can't dismiss it and say it would never happen. You can't just dismiss it. No, it happened. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love, um, um, I, I love stupid, uh, slogany things sometimes. Like, what's the best prediction of, like, what's the best prediction of future behavior? And it's past behavior. It's one of my favorite things to say, when you know, when whether it's a friend or my wife or anyone's talking, like, oh, look at this fucking person. Like, it could be someone they work with, whatever. And I'm like. And if I've heard them tell the story about this person before, one of the first things I always say, I go, I know you're going to hate me for saying this again, but <laughs> what's the best predictor of future behavior? And it's past behavior. It's how, yeah. it's how these people act. And if they reflexively do that, you've got to just prepare yourself and galvanize yourself or mitigate it by doing other things that are different. But yeah, look, I, I, the best thing about the COVID pandemic across all nations is some of the urgency to do things and expect it is almost like a war front mindset is like, hopefully when Biden gets in, in 20, you know, 2021, you know, just doing a raft of executive orders to do things that are urgent and critical to the rep, like to repairing America's economy. A lot of that stuff he can just do. So it's exciting for them to do it. And, um, you know, 
and and I would say in Australian politics, while I don't absolutely do not agree with our conservative politics, like from a moral level and a whole lot of their moral decisions, our pandemic response overwhelmingly has been good. And so in Australia, like compared yeah. to other countries, and, and I just think a lot of that stuff of like being proactive about what the future it can look like and how to have people earning money and how to have jobs, jobs, jobs. Like I hope it's not this short-sighted BS. Like I, I really hope that some of the rhetoric yeah. actually sees rubber hits the road things because everyone's talking a good game right now. But like you said, in the next few months, it's really going to be like in the next few months for everyone in the world, it's going to be where it hits it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I trust, trust Biden to, to do the things like stabilizing institutions and also dealing a lot better with the pandemic. But I think the test will be, Jesus, watch the next stimulus because yeah. they, will, they will get a stimulus through. If that stimulus is just, you know, again, tax cuts for the rich because he wants to deal with the Republicans and, and you know, $1,000 over three <laughs> months, whatever it was for the American work, you can just oh think, well, actually, what's changed is we're polite and a little bit more better run, but the <laughs> fundamental things haven't changed. And that, it would be really sad. Yeah. And really problematic, I think, and, for America. And crazy because you have you have a look at the comparisons. I think France was insanely good. Australia was pretty good. Like even Australia's like who's had really great, um, uh, you know, pandemic support for such a long time. Like for people to have you know keep their jobs or, to, or who who were seeking jobs and um, or lost jobs during the pandemic. Um, some of those stimulus plans have been going through for such a long time now and it's in the next few months they start to dwindle a bit and so there's a lot of concern about mm -hmm. that and and i think the government is also in oz is doing this thing where they're just like we're saying we're going to reduce it but if it starts to really manifest in problems we might just increase it again like i think that i don't think anything's yeah, off yeah. the table so you get lucky but that is the context with which you present the 117th minute um of all the presidents man and for folks who might not be familiar dario uh, uh as a podcaster and as a, a man about the internet um was one of the really early supporters of the show and was so emphatically uh um uh you know gracious to invite me on his show to talk about it and to talk shop podcasting shop um so thank you so much and uh i i feel like for the longest time um I've been meaning to get you back on. And as we're rolling into the completion of this thing, which aspirationally is sort of coming up to my daughter's birthday on the 22nd of November, um, it feels really apt to have you back on the show. So um, thank you so much for coming back. Oh, no, it's, yeah, great. No, it's great, great to be back. And it was great to have you on. And my, hopefully, I was hoping my, I've got a, um, a huge academic piece, 10,000 word piece on podcasting, on film podcasts, basically. It's my wow. first sort of, uh, really in-depth piece of research and and I mentioned you and you know loads of different podcasts so it's uh, yeah I'm looking forward to, to having that out in the world as, as a sort of I, I, I haven't seen anyone else who in from an academic perspective has kind of conceptualized what film podcasts try to do in their many varying forms and I <laughs> yes. think this is this podcast and your you know your productions as a, as a whole have really added a particular kind of strand to film podcasting which i think is really is really important is add, added to cinephilia in this sort of our rule element of it that we have <laughs> now with podcasting oh thank you so much it's i'm i'm so pleased and i can tell you now um i've also had a, i've also got ten thousand words now twelve and a half thousand words 
of the scripts for the next nice. one heat minute production written so far um, uh, for Zodiac Chronicle, which uh, I'm sure that I'll be talking to you about at some point. Um, sure. But uh, but uh, yeah, it's a uh, I, I can't wait to read it and to, for you to say that. Thank you so much because yeah, we uh, we we here at One Heat Minute Productions like uh, we go along and we go mm. specific. <laughs> it's yeah, uh, two of the absolutely. things that we like to do. Um, so let's let's dive into this minute right now. A very uh, interesting minute. We see Stephen Collins, who is a very uh, conflicting individual being in this movie with his history. But yeah, as the context is Hugh Sloan, who I've coined as Slippery Hugh Sloan um, in the context of this movie, um, uh, this is just a wonderful scene to see the lengths that these guys will go to and hopefully not make a mistake, which we know that they're about to. And so as a, as a person who is as familiar with this movie as I am and loves it so much, I'm sure Daria has much to say about the desperation of these guys. So let's watch this, the 117th minute together. Daria and I are going to watch it right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk all about it. I wrote a story that said that Holloman was the fifth name to control the phone. Right. Would we be in any trouble? Would we be wrong? Let me put it this way. I would have no problems if you wrote a story like that. If you wouldn't? No. That's it. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you had a baby. Yeah. That's oh, right. My that's wife did a boy or that's girl. That's terrific. That's a girl. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We're sorry to bother you. Yeah. Would you give our best to her? I will. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it would were just, and I, and I am curious of the fact that the FBI in its entire inquiry never talked to the, or did any inquiries to the second most powerful man of the president. You don't seem to understand. No, you get nothing about Haldeman out of me. But we don't need to know anything, Joe. Tomorrow we're going with a story on the FBI. Well, what does that mean? And we're going to establish in that story that you guys just about blew the whole investigation. Oh, no. Oh, no. We didn't miss so much. <laughs> what a great minute. Yeah, it's, so many it, good things it's very good. Yeah, it's... I mean, I have to say, I have to start with the... Um, the question of you Sloan as a character, because I've listened to the last couple of ep- episodes and your assessment of him actually has made me rethink what my original assessment always was. And it's, I think it's always fascinating when that happens because, you know, here's a film that I consider that I know very, very well, but yeah, here, you know, I, I respect your opinion and I respect your knowledge of the film, but it's so fascinating how you see him as this sort of slippery character and i always had it in my mind that he w- he was trying to do the right thing he was always operating on the level of i'm compromised and i think the wife character feeds into that but you know i forget the actress the the, the act, actor's name who plays his wife um but she's very good as this sort of you know it's centering consciousness Mer- meredith baxter plays meredith Debbie baxter. Slime. wonderfully um, too. yeah and and she she does very well at sort of being this centering conscience of, of their dynamic. And you can see behind the way that she talks is there's obviously been, you know, long discussions between them <laughs> two as husband and wife about doing the right thing. Uh, and I always see him as, as somebody who is, who has tried to do that and is still, is trying to help them, but can't do, can't go that extra mile and, and, and help them. But yet, 
Now, when you said that, I kind of looked again at the sort of narrative arc of this particular little element within the film. And it, and really, he does sort of give them the impression that, oh, he, he, not even just the impression, he says, yeah, you can write that story. And then the next day, you know, he comes out, he's like, no, I never said that. So therefore, has he, has he actually deliberately screwed them over? Yeah, it's, it's, you know what I mean? It's that, like, mm. I've been watching this movie so many times and I had never really had that much of an opinion about the Hugh Sloan character other than exactly what you're saying. Rock in a hard place. I am complicit in some bad stuff. I'm going down. Like yeah. the ship's going down. I'm going down. I'm out yeah. already. And people speak nicely about him as in the bookkeeper, Jane Alexander's character talks about Hugh Sloan and his wife and the morality of that situation. But I think he's getting out absolutely is influenced way more by his wife. And I love thinking about characters who are influenced by their wife. And in this film, you actually get to see it happen. But yeah, I, I, I have not been able to reconcile that opinion since I sort of, since the conversation about Sloan, because he is naturally evasive. He will never go down. Like he's in every interaction they've had, even when his wife gives the blessing, he's dancing around things. And particularly in this moment, I kind of was like, the, the presumption was he wasn't saying anything about his grand jury stuff, but then the implication of them going, if we wrote a story like that, would you have any problem with it? Or would, you know, would you say that we were wrong? And he's like, no, I wouldn't have a problem with any of that. And so, yeah, I I've always thought that he's like self self-preservation first, this story second. And I think they've been very lucky to get to him. And even in the book, they talk about him being brave and, and those sorts of things, which, but there's a difference between fact and dramatic fiction, you know, dramatic yeah, yeah, yeah. docudrama. And in the function of this movie, I think Sloan is a guy who gives them so much, but also can't go to the edge. And that, they've had that with so many different sources. Like I can give you only so much. And if you push yeah. me and they do, they push him beyond his level of comfort. He, he denies it. And then therefore they're stuck in the rock and a hard place of him going like, I gave you so much, but, they didn't ask me that and he won't give them any more specifics. And so I've always found that turn on a dime really troubling now, every, ever since I've watched it. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's, and, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. The, and, and the actor as well, the Stephen Collins is the, the other thing that, that he just pops into my mind is Star Trek, the motion picture. That's the thing I remember him from before, as well as this. And it's really funny how obviously completely different genre and, and character, but he's a very similar type in that movie as well he's a sort of mid-management bureaucrat who <laughs> who who kind of has to do the right thing but is very cautious and you know hasn't got that sort of ideological vision or or interest he just wants to go along and yeah. keep his job and you know what i mean it's 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 fascinating that i think he must have that look maybe look it's it's the same look that i talk about um I've talked about it a couple of times, but uh, John Doman, who played Lieutenant uh, uh, Rawls from, or I think it was like Sergeant Rawls from The Wire. The Wire, yeah. Pops up as John Mitchell in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of Chicago 7. And when I saw <laughs> John Doman, this yeah. ball-busting, forthright, completely crass bureaucrat, like mm. of uh, this, in, in essence, being Mitchell, I was like, that puts this movie in great stead. It's one of those mm. things where you look at this movie and you go, this is great, you know, playing in this wheelhouse because the, the whole ethos of this movie works 
through that prism. And um, yeah, I think he's exactly like that. Like a, a Collins like that, you know, you see him later, um, obviously an extremely controversial figure, but you know, that guy, you catch those guys and, and they perform a function. I think you can really spell it out. But I, again, I, I won't, whether it's his personal life or whatever, I look at him now and I, I cannot, I cannot think more. He, he's always calculating with self-preservation mm. and um the other question I have to ask is, do you ever think he would have spoken to those journalists if his wife hadn't have pushed him? Like she threatened to leave him. No. Yeah. yeah no yeah. way. He's well, I mean, comp- it's interesting. Yeah. He, t- I mean, I think he, he kind of, um, I think she, she actually is trying to protect him and make, and make him not speak to the, because there's the scene earlier on where she actually says, this is, this is an honest house. Yeah. And there's this sort of barrier there, but he <laughs> says, no, no, let let them come in because they're going to write, write a story anyway. You know, I think sometimes the, the, there's a point in a, in a narrative and he knows the position he's, he's in, as you've said, that look, this story is going to come out. So, you know, it'd be better get... to get my quotes in there or my, my perspective <laughs> on, my, in that on my terms. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. But I mean, it's an interesting scene in terms of the, that, this whole um, question of getting at the truth of who was involved in the slush fund yes. and the non, the non naming of Holderman becomes <laughs> a kind of, you know, the key to that. But you know, on a broader sense, it, and again, just relating to the world that we're in right now, it's like that requirement, and they have the big argument in the in the scenes that you've got coming up about whether there's enough proof to go with the story and everything. And that that burden of proof is so heavy, and this is why this is a this is a you know a film that you you have to put in a in a classical vein. You know, I don't want to say yeah, that's the wrong word, but you know, like Spotlight, really, and like Zodiac, and like The Post, and even though those these films are owed debts to all the presence men and are much more contemporary films. They're still films that, that you couldn't make that type of film. I don't think of a Trump presidency because they're, they're, they're aspiring to a, a level of authenticity and truth in terms of trying to reach that. And once we reach it, all parties will agree. Whereas now the truth is a negotiation. So I, I don't know how a, a film of Donald Trump of this ilk, which will probably come out at some point, will be made. But but if it is made in the in in the vein of a here are the crusading journalists getting to the truth, it, it won't be true to the, the 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 sensibility of the time. I don't think. I totally agree. I, I genuinely don't think that there's a way, uh, there's not really a way that you can approach the different facts of Trump. Like in this movie, we see the sort of propagandistic sort of Nixon rhetoric come in a few TV bulletins that sort of permeate through the film. You get like a couple of moments that are like, oh, you know, of course it's the Washington Post. They've already got the other people's ticket. Oh, of course this. But the, the neutral zone for the movie is that the post is reporting objective facts and then other news organizations start asking follow-up questions about the objective facts that are reported in the post to clarify the story. And then that grows and blooms into the rest of the dialogue of the movie. And it feels like if you were trying to write a story like this about some aspect, which you would have to be, you know, you get a genius like William Goldman to like, 
dial in and focus in and laser focus on what would be that aspect. So much of it would be like trying to cut through how much of the misinformation and nonsense, which in and of itself is part of the story, do you actually reference in the telling of the story? Because it's almost impossible to think of like, how, how do you, how do you cut through when there's a 24 hour news cycle channel of in the Fox news, you know, run by the Murdochs that essentially is just extreme right propaganda 99% of the time. Yeah. And it's interesting in terms of the, the question of the non-denial denials, which feeds into that a little bit in terms of, I think politicians today obviously still use non-denial denials, but Donald Trump, and I think more and more politicians like uh, who are copying him are using just straight denials of things that are, you know, there's evidence (laughs) undeniable, you know, which is, which is like crazy. And, and the thing is the reason they can get away with that is because we have these siloed news organizations and what's been really fascinating actually. And we, we mentioned this just before we came on is the way that I think the mainstream media is now cottoned on to the fact that they're going to have to tweak their process in terms of relying on the, objectivity you know uh, structure that you know if you think about the bbc neutrality and here's one side and here the here's the other now they are starting to use ways of caveating speech that has been made by politicians I mean, donald trump is obviously the test case but they will report what he says and then caveat it underneath there is no basis in <laughs> in fact for this statement but we have to report it and twitter's doing the same thing so i think that 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 sort of framework of factuality, verisimilitude, if you want to use a fancy word, that even back in the 1970s was accepted on the other side. Yeah, we're trying to cover it up. So there was truth and lies, and there was a relational aspect between the two. Whereas Donald Trump, there is no relational aspect. It's just whatever comes into his head. And everything he says is true because in his own mind, he said it. So therefore, ipso facto, it must be true. <laughs> and, you know and, what I mean? And, and what's even worse, ipso facto, it's true for the people who support him. So I think yeah, that, yeah, yeah. you know, I think that if it was even just one, and this is why the block button is so beautiful with like Twitter and, and <laughs> you know, is if it was even one statement a week that the Republicans Um, then said, look, you know, he's probably misworded that there, you know, what I think he meant was, but this is what is so tiresome and also like must be so grinding and also why, you know, a a lot of these, I guess, Fox news people might just eventually go insane. Like, you know, um, uh, like Howard Beale style, you know, like in network and Mm -hmm. just end up like walking down the street in their underpants screaming in the rain is because they've spent four years basically trying to approach what is utter nonsense and bluster and bullshit and treat it like it is dignified political speech. And I think anyone who has done that, and it's literally because it is the most powerful person in the world. That position holds the most power of any position. And Americans elected a guy because they thought that he was going to be a, a great disruptor and go through there. But ultimately what it did was embolden white nationalists. It, it like it, all it wanted to do was rub. He, he's such a petty man. All he wanted to do is rub his nose in uh, with all his victories when he could have actually legitimately just executed huge, powerful, world changing things because he could and some things did happen under his administration 
but like a drop in the ocean compared to even Richard Nixon, who is the subject of this movie. And yeah, I just, I think that, you know, when you look at, when you look at it like that, I, I, I just, I genuinely don't understand um, how you could have the paradigm shift between a president or someone acting presidential or what we've thought was presidential. Like, so- When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So many of our American mutual friends and, and people that we admire today have just been spouting things like on, on Twitter, like watching the speeches of Biden, the acceptance speeches of Biden and, 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 and Kamala Harris, his vice president, um, saying, isn't it nice that people use whole sentences? This is a victory for, it's like a few tweets saying, this is a victory for sentences. You know, this is a victory for yeah, yeah. this is a victory for people speaking with dignity and passion and mm. inclusion and unity. And it's like, God, this is what presidents used to sound like. Isn't that a novelty? Like, you know, to think yeah. of that time. And so, yeah, I, I genuinely think it's um, it's really fascinating because at the, even at this time, you know, again, I feel like I might be the guy who's like praising Nixon. I'm like one of those lunatics um, who like, you know, <laughs> praises, you know, George W. Bush, George W. Bush, in, you know, in, incursion into Iraq. You know, I feel like I'm like that guy, but like Nixon at least had shame. Mm. He had shame. He was a man who respected the office and although he manipulated it and was a power monger and did awful things there, he also did great hugely diplomatic things and push the envelope as a politician. Um, and yeah, I, I just can't imagine a world like it's been hard to imagine this world even existing, this movie feeling more like a fantasy with the, the rise of Trumpism and that emphatic sort of like actually treating like he says things seriously. It's absolute nonsense. Most of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm always sort of, um, like you there talking about Nixon, it's kind of like being aware of the fact that all presidents, you know, do things that we disagree with. And, yeah. you know, Obama's a case in point, you know, that, that the difference between the, the first kind of feelings and waves of possibility that accompanied Obama when he first came in, the reality of what Obama actually was. I think if you're honest with yourself, are poles apart, yeah. you know, really a long, long way apart. And, you know, there was the 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 bill that that he passed with Biden. You know, that was the, I think it was the the um, the the tax cutting bill that was to do with the stimulus package after two thousand and eight was, you know, absolutely horrendous for, you know, for for the, for the American workers and stuff like that. And you have to you have to remember that. And and again, it's that problem at the moment, right at the minute, everybody wants to be happy and say, oh, thank yeah. God Trump has, thank God Trump has gone. And I'm right there with that. But then, you know, hopefully more quickly than, you know, hopefully over a very short space of time, we will move on from that and sort of say, okay, you know, politeness is not the thing that we want at the end of the day. It's no. nice to have it. And, you know, and, and complete sentences is also really great to have. But, <laughs> you know, the, the, the that has to, we have to think about the depth of what 
what policies are, are doing. And we just don't, we haven't done that for, for four years, for probably for about six years since Trump has been running even, that it's become, it has become a superficial TV game show. And, and, and what and I, I think, think that, what I think yeah, ahead, both of us can agree on is at the beginning of Trump's campaign for mm. president, he said, you know, apart from saying a lot of stupid things as he did it throughout his entire reign, he did say legitimately good things about like, you know, regulating Wall, Wall Street more tightly and tightening up those taxes and, oh, yeah. you know, and, and doing things. And some of the actual platforms that he campaigned on and continued, like they would have legitimately been good for the country and maybe even yeah, good yeah, for yeah. the world um, had he been able to do them. But then when he got into power, you're like, oh, he doesn't care about any of that. Oh, no, he, didn't. he never meant any of it. But his rhetoric <laughs> was, uh, on certain things, his rhetoric was more to the left than Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And therefore, on, just on a rhetoric basis, if you take it at face value, it's like, yeah, but I, I agree more with that. I mean, you know, with anybody with half a brain would know it was bullshit. But, you know what I mean? The rhetoric of it was Hey, was the rhetoric is, in many ways. sounded good. It sounded like he was going to do some stuff. And, yeah, you're like, yep, this is good. This is going to work. Um, but, yeah, it's a, and it's also, you know, the – it's like there's decisions about, like, upholding the status quo when the paradigm is, like, you know, pre-COVID world and things like that, you can totally look at it and go, there's no way, you know, if it was a post-COVID thing or no way if those guys had their time again that they would maybe do something else. And, you know, one of my favorite things to think about in the housing crisis is, you know, we've got to bail out the banks, otherwise we're going to be screwed. And, you know, John Stewart answered an interview in a question, in a podcast, um, a podcast that I mentioned frequently because I'm not scared of, his opinions is Joe Rogan. Um, cause I don't necessarily listen to every episode, nor do I agree with every uh, a guest or agree with his opinions on many things, but just as a, I'm a fan. So I listen to the episodes, but he, John Stewart was talking to Joe Rogan about, he had one of Obama's financial advisors on, and they were talking about the stimulus package that then bailed out the banks ultimately to, to continue the American economy going forward. And John Stewart said, look, I'm an idiot. So I asked a stupid question. I asked, what if instead of paying back the banks, you just paid out every mortgage debt in the country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Surely that's less. All the bad mortgage, every bad mortgage in the country, you just go and get money and you pay it out. Therefore, keep people keeping homes, keeping jobs, keeping this, they don't lose homes, da 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 And the guy was like, oh, because he gave some weird rule like, oh, because you can't incentivize people like, like, paying off mortgages we as the government can't just incentivize people by just paying things off that they owe a debt for like because you know that's that's not good for the country he's like free stuff yeah free stuff basically <laughs> kind of free stuff kind of free stuff <laughs> but then it was like but you're just giving the banks the free stuff like they messed yeah. it up they messed it up and they set these people up for failure but if you just did that and then the question is like that's the same with everything it's it's all about policy politics yeah, is yeah. policy it's like how much what runs do you get on the board and and you know you look at the Obama years and everything was difficult for them to do because the Republicans still had a stranglehold of different areas of the house. And as you said, so important, you know, it's now going to come down to a by-election in Georgia, you know, on the 5th of January, you know, to get two more senators in the house, which will give them the senatorial majority, which will actually allow things to happen. Otherwise it's going to be, you know, such a slog for the entire journey. But yeah, it's, it's going to be a really interesting time coming ahead. And, and, and again, for you and I as outsiders, I think what's critically important is, it is about, this is America's influence. It is, if you are, act like a Trumpist, nationalist, you know, um, 
conservative, you are emboldened if that is America. If if you are a Trumpist, uh, nationalist conservative, and President Obama is the president that you have to interact with as one of your greatest allies and one of the biggest influences in the Western capitalist world, you have to contend with something different because your opinions are very different. You know, it's a, it's a much bigger challenge for you. Whereas if you're getting patted on the back by Trump, it's a completely different story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think in the, in the UK, again, sort of from the outsider position already on, on Twitter, that the, the, it's been hilarious to see the kind of reactions and the, in terms of the way that, that the, it's been reported that the Biden administration is going to treat the UK, you know, and, and it's really funny because on the one hand, you know, for coming from the UK, say, oh, well, you know, may have it actually, it was, it was better for the UK if Trump was in power. But actually, I think you've got to take the kind of longer view and say, look, you know, it, it may be worse for the Tory government and Boris Johnson, which is fine by me, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> and hopefully that will actually um, focus minds when it comes to this deal with the, with the EU. But, you know, I don't want to go off and in that direction, that, uh, that's for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny in terms of this, this particular scene and the way that it's, it's situated in the movie and comes just after the whole, the whole kind of rap fucking element of the narrative and that that is so is so clearly um a part of the way that that particularly deep throat but then you know the movie in general is sort of showing woodward and bernstein how they're up against more than just the content of of what it is that has been done you know what i mean they're up against a system that is playing around with how electoral and democratic mechanics actually work and you know and that sort of what that's one of the things i think that makes the film still prescient yes we have we have rat fucking on digital you know on, on digital rat fucking now and it's so much more complicated and actually is is more important i think i mean it goes back to marshall McLuhan. you know the the, the medium is the message when it yes. comes to this kind of uh you know, it's it's how those messages are spread as much as what what the messages are, and yeah, the film sort of really it shows us that that has been going on all the time. Messing around with the democratic process is part of the 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 real politic game, and it's it's like um, it's like the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park. You know, where they, where they, where where that old guy is like telling you that they're always just pressure testing the fence that mm. in every single way. And I think that that's what rat fucking is. It's literally taking it to the lines with a country as big as America, with as many States and as, big as, as many legislatures. It's like in every state, we're going to test the pr- pressure test, the electric fence. And like those last four years, rat fucking has gone electric. You know what I mean? Like this is like QAnon and like, conspiracies and all those sorts of things and you know alternative media outlets and whatever the case may be and and largely with those alternative media outlets having such a big influence and not having and not being steeped in facts even if they sometimes say that things say factually accurate things and i think one of the big models of that is like all the epstein stuff you know it was alternative media outlets and even people as crazy as alex jones who are like saying all that stuff about jeffrey epstein and you know these you know things that have now permeated into your country you know recently murdoch press you know found out that a uh, you know, a former Australian prime minister or like was working with a think tank who one day had funding from these crazy things and guys. Um, but yeah, I think that that's the big challenge is like, what do you do when rat fucking 
um, can happen because alternative media outlets who don't have the same basis in facts that mainstream media outlets like newspapers or like digital versions of those newspapers need to have or media outlets because then there's not the same burden of proof on them to be factual. So then it's just like we are generation clickbait and Trump is a manifestation of clickbait and we have this guy and we have digital rat fucking and it's really weird. And it's even really funny. Um, I follow a couple of accounts on Twitter. I don't know if you do, but you should for your own interests that, that show you the top five or top, top 10 ranking stories on Facebook of that day. Like I'm not a Facebook guy, I delete it, but but it shows you what the top 10 are. And in the last couple of days, because of like Facebook attempting to not just be like the home of, you know, you know, giving the, the voice to all of your racist relatives as it is. um, uh, Basically it showed that like, the New York times and BBC and stuff were like in the top 10 list for like the first time. And then later down the list, it was like Fox news. And so a few people are commenting like, Oh, look, you know, Zuckerberg, you know, starting to pretend like, you know, starting to direct some people to some traffic to some verifiable sources rather than um, the the alternative. So it's really, it's even, even now, even now it is a fascinating time to watch how this is unfolding. the, and the layers of rap fucking are, are just kind of incredible, really, because you, if you think about it, the, in the film, it's the you know it's the the Canuck letter that that destroys the Muskie candidacy. So they're running against the Republicans are running against the the candidate that they wanted, and you know, is that in the same ballpark, say, as um, trying to uh, like the the postal service in America only having one post box where you can drop off your you know what I mean? So. Donald Trump hires someone who's going to do that's, that. And then, that's, that's as big a rap fucking as anything. Exactly. And then, you you know, but it's a blunt instrument, but it's not, um, it's it's in the same ballpark as Cambridge Analytica. It's still rap fucking. But then, you 100%. know, it's even more nuanced than that. So say, for example, there's internal rap fucking. So when Barack Obama phones Klobuchar and Pete Budishich and tells them to drop out, the day before Super Tuesday, that's rat fucking of a, of a kind. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? It's not allowing, th- it's, it's recognizing that things don't play out in this cause and effect un, un, um, encumbered way. And on both sides, there is this machinations of playing out with the democratic mechanism. And, you know, it, it would be naive to say that it all comes from one side. It doesn't. It it, it happens all through the pro, all through the process from both sides. Yeah, it happens on the process. Maybe worse from the right, but you never know. You oh, know? Uh, yeah, you, you can you can <laughs> definitely say it happens on both sides. I think yeah. I think that the campaign and the very I think that rat fucking to pressure test and try and get the votes and then get people in, but like Trump's team. Steve Bannon and those guys who basically were the architects of his entire campaign, rat fucking was their sole thing was to continue rat fucking the democratic process for the purpose of, you know, having Trump in there for what, like FDR, like four terms or until he was dead or something like basically turn the whole, you know, turn the United States into Trump land. Like that's the kind of uh, thing that you look at and you go, wow. But, um, you know, the, the very prospect um, of of what a world would look like without this much rat fucking. I think the power of it is after all these tests, people still vote. You know, people have got to vote. And so the, the, the challenge yeah. is then rat fucking might've been one Canuck letter of one speech. And I think to your point with digital rat fucking, there's no escape. 
it's no. in every podcast that you listen yeah. to. It's in every, yeah, yeah. you fucking talk about it on my show with you and I right now over zoom between the UK and Oz and I'll get a Google ad <laughs> talk about something, you know, it's like, it's, it's permeated everything that we do. So that the major challenge is like, how the hell do you, how the hell do you yeah. escape it? How do you be objective? How do you think about different sides of different arguments and without it just being rhetoric and propaganda? And I, I don't know if we've got a right answer for that yet. It's real. It's a, it's an insane challenge. Yeah. I, I, well, we haven't. And, and, you know, hopefully the, the next period of time historically will will allow us to see you know the, the trump era for for what it was a little bit and then maybe hopefully i mean you know things will change but again without sort of being naively general just how the media itself relates to politics and relays politics and that that notion of the media of a fourth estate you know, is something that has been has been entirely lost, and uh, you know, and I, I, may, maybe it is naive to sort of think that there is a process by which that will take place. It's just what's going to happen is is going to happen, and that's that's still quite scary. I'm I'm sorry, I can't be more optimistic on that. No, I think um, I don't think either of us are going to have an answer on that, and I think that a lot of the the great journos that have been on this show that I've spoken to um, talk to like the fundamentals of that, because it is ultimately, you know, journalists aren't like as there's, as they've been demonized for the last four years, like they're not out there to spin bad stuff. I mean, there are some outlets that do, and that that's, that's their prerogative to do so. And, and they should just be dwarfed in like, mm. as a consumer, you go, these guys talk a lot of nonsense and you, you should have good factual papers and out and sources. And the value has been on clickbait rather than facts. And I think that there's a, a bit of a turning point in history right now with that happening. And, and that's exciting. And, and even in this moment, like we, we, we dive in the second half of the minute to Joe, where they're like putting all of these facts to, you know, an FBI source trying to get them to, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to be, uh, roughly get him on, on the hook with Holderman. Um, but what's really beautiful actually in this minute, like one of the most human moments of the entire film is, after all of the play and after all of like the journalistic rigor, you had a baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all of a like twist in the in the conversation <laughs> where they they're very dark and very deep, and it's it's framed. Both scenes are actually both scenes with with Sloan and then the the FBI call are are framed in a very sort of film noir kind of way, you know, yes. with the chiaroscuro kind of lighting with the cuts right across the faces and yeah but it's lovely how they just that tone turn on a Redford dime. particularly is very good at that you know what i mean it's like <laughs> oh yeah he had a baby that was so, that's so nice and then, <laughs> and then and then also bernstein's sincerity of like well you know what was it boy or girl and he goes girl yeah. congratulations just a big beautiful warm <laughs> smile give her our best will you? and it's just yeah. uh, it's it's a moment in this movie that you know i think about i think about the pain of the dance and i really admire it of like really great journalists that do this for their whole life. It's like having a source that you can speak candidly with that will go on the record for you that will maybe, will maybe put themselves at risk for the information that they're going to pass on to you. And sorry for anyone listening, all of my slippery Hugh Sloan talk is about this actor, Stephen Collins playing Hugh Sloan, just not to say him as an, is an individual, but just in purely in the betrayal in the, in the context of this movie. But I deeply love that 
a huge part of being a great journalist is your ability to create relationships with people and, and, and maintain them because you can't just you get a source and use them like a disposable napkin. Like you have to, mm. you have to craft these great relationships so that when something goes down, you can rely on them. And these guys have had to do that process so much faster because ultimately the breadth of this story and the complicity of all of the people that they're actually talking to might mean that they're never going to use them again. And so I think yeah. that that's a really powerful and kind of beautiful and poignant moment, not only just like to show the human element of like these guys knocking on doors and like realizing that they're actually using these real individuals and people who are going through shit, getting fired, having kids, living their lives. But I just, mm. yeah, I think it's a really sweet moment for me. I, it's one I can't get enough of, of like, oh, I'm actually, how are you? Like, and I, I sometimes feel like that as a podcast host, not in the same way, but like, that's why I try, like, I'm so, I was, I was so excited to talk to you, Daria, and so excited to talk to all the people I talked to on the show, but like actually going, usually before mm. we even start, how the hell are you? Are you alive? Yeah, like yeah. what the hell's going on? How's, how's things? And it's, it's just a nice touch in so many nice and depth touches in this movie to actually have that interaction, show that these guys are still people. They haven't lost that. Yeah, yeah, it's and maybe there's a there is a sort of cultural difference in terms of the way that particular countries depict journalists because I think in the UK I'm just watching The Fall at the moment, you know, the which is with Gillian Anderson, it's a kind yeah. of yeah. murder suspense thing. She's a cop. Um and it's very good. It was on a few years back and it's very good indeed. I'm really enjoying it. Um but the journalists in that are all shit. They're all, you know, depicted horribly. They're just out for the story. They want to screw anybody over. And I think that the the sort of tabloid, um, the, the, the yeah, the, the tabloids in the UK and the reputational, um, the reputations of the tabloids that they have in the UK and, and their mercilessness, let's say. And, you know, the, 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 the whole history of Hacked Off and then the you know, all the stories that, that are attached to the worst of the tabloids is is foregrounded in terms of the the way that they're represented, I think, in, in British contexts. Whereas I think American movies still have this sort of, uh, you know, idealized, romanticized version of the of the crusading journalist, perhaps. And maybe it's the same in, in Australia. Yeah, we but don't it's, have... It's interesting how you make that difference. We don't have enough journalistic texts to, to, right. to, to tell that story. I mean, um, the only thing I would say is like, um, you know, We've had huge figures. Like I'm just thinking about like, there was some Kerry Packer, like Kerry Packer movies, you know, yeah, that yeah, they yeah. did like for TV with yeah. a really phenomenal actor, Lockie Hume, an Aussie actor, a cinema, cinematic actor. But, um, you know, doing these TV movies and stuff like that, they just talk about the influence of that. But we don't have, we haven't had enough really good Aussie journal movies, um, and, you know, for, for massive stories that have been broken. That's amazing considering Maxwell and Murdoch. Isn't it? It's amazing considering Maxwell and Murdoch that there yeah. isn't sort of, yeah, there's not. And, you know, look, we can talk off, we can talk offline about why I think that's the case. Um, uh, but, but, uh, but I can tell you online, I've said it too many times now, but you know, too many movies about heroin addicts in love in Melbourne, like who gives a fuck um, to be brutally honest with you. I don't care about any right. of those fucking idiots. Just like make a movie that's interesting and entertaining and a genre sure. movie, Australia, for God's sake. Um, that's where we make our best movies. Um, but no, I, I think, you know, I think that tabloid thing bleeds in and like the demonization of tabloids, like absolutely bleeds in from, you know, all the way back to, you know, princess Diana and, and those mm. sorts of things like that, that really turned tabloid journalism and made them yeah, yeah. way more combative and, and things like that. And, and 
just having that, you know, unabashed thing. And it's that weird line of so much of, you know, huge scoops and huge stories come from things like, um, you know, begin their life in the tabloids or what we consider tabloids and then actually like get picked up by mainstream journos. So I don't know. It's a bit of a column A, column B thing. And um, I, 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 don't, I don't know whether there's going to be a reckoning with that, but I hope that there is because there's so many great journos have done so much work over this time. Just none of them. And even though there's probably been 20 Watergates in the Trump presidency for them to latch onto and think, oh, this is the Watergate of this era, nothing ever stuck. <laughs> like nothing. Not the grab him in the, by the pussy, not the Bob Woodward calls about him no, lying about no. COVID, not, you know, uh, you know, uh, immigrants in cages on the, on the Southern borders of the United States and still, still in cages, not any of that, like just, um, over, uh, you know, not re- you know, close personal relationships with Kim Jong-un, like none of it. No, 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 no. And uh, I think within each organization as well, there are different wings of, of journalism, aren't there? And that, you know, there's a, even within Fox News, there are people who are kind of more on the same side than than, than some yeah. of the out, out, outright, you know, um, propagandists that are, that are on there. And I think that actually, I think CNN is one of those organisations that has evolved since the beginning of the Trump presidency, and particularly, again, like you said, the um, his his uh, his campaign before he even became president, and their their whole ratings were based on just just following him, and not and and I think. They've they've they have evolved particularly in in the last couple of years in terms of the coverage, which is all you know still Donald Trump. But I, I, I think that they, it seemed to me that there was a sort of sense that they didn't like that reputation that they were given as just being a, a mouthpiece and were much more critical. Yeah, I, I, I it's um, yeah, it's 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 really it's really funny to watch the transparency, um it's really funny to watch the transparency of certain things come through, like in media, like especially in this, in the, in the transition of the moment, you know, people are saying, Oh, you know, Fox news is, you know, very accurately, actually sometimes way before some of the other networks calling the election or calling mm-hmm. different regions. Cause they're, you know, they're analytic analytical teams and their guys and their pulse is actually way more accurate than almost anyone online, which is crazy. Mm. Shows that they know their audience um, shows that they know the people that watch Fox news, which is interesting. Um, but also just even with something like you can also see the fractures um, in maybe, you know, some of those moments leading up to the election of like Trump's opinion of McCain, you know, talking about ex-service people and, and those sorts of things and watching those fractures and actually watching people finally be critical of Trump um, in that context and watching Fox news be forthright in their criticism. Yeah. If it just feels yeah, like th- those moments came and they were interesting and they were like, huh, this is strange. Like, what does this say? And then actually the story isn't, doesn't get the profile. It starts being like people who view media like you and I going, wait a minute, did Fox news just criticize Trump? What the hell does yeah, that mean? What's, what's going, going on? on? What's going on? That, that's amazing. That becomes a thing because it's, it's so that's one of the things that's so different to the film i think and in sort of scenes later on that you'll that you'll cover where you know the, the this story kind of goes bad for for a little while mm. and there's an a, there's an accusation of of the um the washington post and of ben bradley personally of being biased and having a having a you know a, a clear agenda that is anti richard nixon and 
they feel the weight of that accusation in the newsroom, which is yes. kind of interesting and very different to, you know, today where we just call out willy nilly, oh, this newspaper is that and that newspaper is biased in this way and, and what have you. So it's, it's amazing how that sort of is, they take those, they take those accusations seriously in, yes. in the film. And what's also really funny is, you know, for a country with yours, with the, like you said, with sort of like, I don't know, the, the tabloid connotation. Um, and there's a lot of litigation that happens in the UK around, you know, tabloid, you know, nonsense that happens very recently with, I never thought I'd mention him on the show, but Johnny Depp, which is just an interesting <laughs> thing anyway. Um, you know, poor Johnny, um, uh, not really poor Johnny. He gives a shit about Johnny Depp, but, um, uh, it's funny that also in the UK, like with the guardian and with BBC, there is a great prestige amongst those brands for, even though they are multifaceted, you know, uh, organizations, there is a great prestige with those brands that still holds true to papers like the post and papers like, even though the post absolutely skews to a, a more conservative than even probably this movie did. Cause Bradley was such a, a liberal guy. Um, but like the times there's not many brands left in, in the international context that are known internationally that have that. If I follow this brand, I'm going to get the best stuff. And even in Australia, the ABC in Australia has been like a, you know, all the way back from the beginning of the year. And I, I definitely have followed it and read it more. I've had, you know, know people who write for the ABC, et cetera, and work with the ABC. Um, but right from the beginning of the year, especially with coverage around fires in Australia, which, you know, life saving potential coverage, they've been like a salve compared to the other nonsense, like watching the Australian pundits, like on morning magazine shows talk about, Trump and talk about COVID responses and talk about this stuff. It's like you could easily just want to blow your brains out after watching 15 minutes of this nonsense. Cause it's just like yeah, people yeah. taking one factoid and unpacking it for 24 hours in a day. And I'm the guy who unpacks one minute for an hour and, and I'm yeah. bored out of my mind with all the nonsense that they spout. But um, it's yeah. Like there's with what I think a lot of people are appreciating is like just being able to go to a media outlet and not having to read 12 other media outlets to validate what the actual story is. And I think that that's, mm. you know, time in lives, time in, you know, people's uh, just experience. Like I don't, I don't want to have to go and search every site to see if this story that's on CNN is true. Maybe I want to yeah. just go to the guardian cause I know at least I can trust it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, th I think that actually, any news organization that can carve out that level of trust is going to succeed yes. more and more in the future. And because I think people are, are recognizing that they can't trust a lot of what they see online and whether it's hopefully we'll be able to get past kind of like legacy brandings or, or, you know, just historically because this, this paper or this news organization has, has been lent this way that, it may change in the future and we can recognize that, that. And I think that there's a potential for that to happen because the internet is so fluid. And like, say for example, in the UK, you know, you could, the, the telegraph is very much a kind of stool for the, the, the conservative right. But you look at the financial times, you look at even the, even stories in the daily mail, which is just a horrendous rag or has been for years under Dacre and, and are the, now much and more critical. And the ugliest fucking thing to read online in the history oh, God, of any it's website. Written, you know, yeah, it's, just, <laughs> any it's just the worst, just the worst. But like the Financial Times now is, 
really quite an interesting place to go and get, you know, opinion on on economics and opinion on on society and culture that you you wouldn't really expect to to take the positions that it does. And I think that that's interesting where those divisions of left and right within within media organizations is now I think will start to become a lot more a lot more fluid. It will be harder, I think, to pigeonhole. I think the more that the institutions recognize that that's the way forward, the better, hopefully, that, that our whole informational um, infrastructure will get. Yeah. Um, there's going to be an upcoming episode that follows uh, you, Dario, that I talk with Corey Everett, um, who is a really great cinephile himself. Um, a lot of people would know him from the him inventing the cinephile card game, which is just a wonderful oh, right. thing. Um, but we are talking now after I've spoken to him. And at the time we were talking in the conversation, it's so funny. He was looking at the New York times because we, we wouldn't, he, he wouldn't say that an election had been called until it's like, he saw it on the times. Like he knew it would yeah, be yeah, a yeah. fact if he saw it on the times. And it's just, that is going to be an interesting thing because those papers where people can look down and trust that what yep. they're seeing is factually accurate. And obviously yep. opinion is inherent in everything that is written, especially in a long form piece, but like the, yep. the foundational factual stuff of like, this is what was said. And there's something to be said about that. And mm. I can't remember who said it recently, but they did on the show is there has never been a virtual comparison to how awesome a great front page on a great paper is that mm. says this is the most important story of the day. And here are the other two that are the most important stories of the day. And then the order with which you read the paper is in order of importance. And the back page obviously is sport, but yeah, there is nothing that does that in the digital realm nearly as well, yeah. because the ticker tape and the constant evolution, it's like, you know, a few people have even pined about it during the election results. Wouldn't it have been nice to just go and wake up and read the paper and find out who yeah, actually yeah, won yeah, the election yeah. and have the physical print of who had won rather yep. than the insanity of like not sleeping for 24 hours or 32 yeah, yeah. hours or seven. Yeah, well, it's been hours. a week, hasn't it? I think people <laughs> were, people went through the two days of the election and then went through the two days, probably in the last two or three days, you know, waiting for it to be called. Yeah, you know, it's just been, it's been mental and it, it messes around with your mental health. I think a lot, a lot of the time, that's why I'm, you know, I've talked to you before about withdrawing some of my political podcasts from my rotation, because I don't want to feel like I'm just being, having that sort of center left, very straightforward opinion reiterated to me time, time again, just by slightly different voices. Yeah. And, you know, I think what I've really enjoyed with this show is that we've been able to talk about politics, we've been able to talk about history, been able to talk about journalism, and been able to talk about cinema. And sometimes I, if there's a really political show, I've had some great, you know, political editors, of, you know, and, and journalists and stuff like that that come on the show and give some great insights or people who've been in the biz and, or, you know, uh, people who are in actual politics in, in ways and means. And then sometimes you just come on and talk nonsense for like, an hour about how cool Robert Redford looks in corduroy. That has <laughs> yeah, been yeah. such a joy to do for this show because some of those shows are my favorites because like it is a really rough time for everyone in 2020. Everyone's having one. Everyone's having a stressful time. Um, and you know, some more than others and people putting their lives on the line to vote and those sort of crazy things like in Australia and in the UK, 
know, elections are on the weekends and they're pretty much compulsory. And so you go down and you do it and that's what it is. You go and vote. And the the craziness of America having to have the biggest voter turnout ever in the middle of a pandemic, a swelling second wave. It's yeah. a crazy time. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I think that this this conversation, which I've really enjoyed because it's just timed at the right moment for, be, for me to be able to, you know, get all this get all these thoughts off off my brain and now I can go and go for a run or whatever it is <laughs> and have the rest of the weekend off from politics. And I think, you know, with the timing of the election and the timing of when Biden was called, which was just yesterday, would obviously dictate our our conversation today. But, you know, it's obviously always interesting to to place it in the in the framework of this of this movie, which which, you know, continues to be a, a, a touchstone cinematically, but also a kind of a benchmark, I think, of the way that the the media and politics interacts and how we can think about that. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you so much for being such a supporter of the show and thank you for your friendship over the last year. It's good to see you. Um, it's good to see you surviving and uh, and what a crazy next 12 months this is going to be all around the world. Um, thank you so much for your support and uh, all the best with everything that's going on with you and, and your great show is, can you, can you spruik um, your, your written piece about podcasts? Like, and where that's going to drop is that? Is yeah. That yeah. Sure. It's going to be, it's, it's on the film philosophy um, journal, online journal. And it's, it's not, um, it, I don't think there's any uh, paywall on it. So as soon as it's up, I'll, uh, I'll be sharing it on social media and what have you. I'll share it to you. So you'll, you'll be able to, have a look at it and thanks thanks for having me back on and you know good luck with the next iteration of this you know amazing sort of uh, podcast production network that you that you've you've gotten uh, i hope you know obviously everything's okay in australia and enjoy your daughter's birthday i will thank you what a lot of people don't realize is that i dropped the finale of one heat minute on my son's birthday for a very specific tactical reason dario which is i was so nervous about the end you know, it had consumed such a massive part of my life and it was such an incredibly rewarding creative pursuit that when I was hitting go on that final episode with Mr. Michael Mann, I was like, I can't even look at this. Mm. So I just did it on my son's birthday. It was his first birthday. So I could just walk away. I was like, I just can't look at this anymore. I just need to be done. And so that's the entire reason for doing it like that, which is exactly yeah. what I wanted to do. And so I thought, well, end of November, that's close enough to my daughter's birthday. I just want to do the same with the show in the nicest possible way of like finishing off. Um, hopefully people will enjoy what we've got coming up. I wish I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil right now, but hopefully people dig it. And, uh, and, um, and I just kind of want to walk away at the end of the show going this is that that's it and 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 then i'll and then i'll come back a few hours later with hopefully lots of people saying nice things online again and uh, and walk away off into the sunset and then and then uh dive myself into the bay area uh in uh in the turning uh point of the 60s and 70s and start to uh, start talking to talking about serial killers who were never caught and uh, three people who essentially ruined their lives in the pursuit of finding out the truth. Yeah, yeah, you've definitely got um, more stamina than any other film podcaster I know. So uh, that's, uh, that's your, I'll give you that title. That's sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. You're the best. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. Take care, buddy.
That was the incredible Dario Linares. If you want to find him, the best place to start is Twitter, which is at Dario Double, the word double, D-O-U-B-L-E-L with a capitalized L. He has two great podcasts. There's the New Oral, which is linked in the description of the show, which we haven't talked about before, and his sort of epic cinematologist podcast, which you can find at cinematologist.com or wherever you search um, for your podcasts. He's great. He's also at dariolinaris.com, where he's got different blogs about podcasting as a medium, um, which is kind of fascinating. And if he does come up with that new uh, sort of 10,000-word exegesis on podcasting, I will definitely share it on the socials when that comes around. Thank Thank you, Dario, again for being a part of the show. Guys, we are in the downhill slope of this film. I have great guests. We have lots of episodes coming thick and fast almost every day that I can have an episode up. You will because we're edging closer to the end, just like this ferocious 20 minutes. Talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.